Welcome to the Being Giants podcast, a show by academics for academics. I'm one of your hosts, Joyce Yeager, and this week I'm speaking with Dr. Dave Baiocchi. We'll talk about how he got interested in science and some of the reasons he transitioned out of academia. We'll talk about science policy work he's done at the RAND Corporation and about his work at Imaginative Futures, where he designs infographics for complex problems. We'll also discuss how visual arts can be a really effective form of science communication. As you'll hear, Davis saw a lot about the PhD process in his own life and while working with PhD students at the RAND Corporation. We'll talk about ways you can think about designing and bridging a PhD if you think you might want to go a different direction after your graduate studies. We've included in the show notes some books Dave recommends about designing your career and some cool examples of the infographics he's recently made. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. My guest is Dr. Dave Baiocchi. Dave earned a Bachelor of Science in Physics at DePaul University and a Master's and PhD at the University of Arizona in Optical Sciences. He then worked as a researcher at Sandia National Lab and then moved to the RAND Corporation. At RAND, he was a professor, senior researcher, and director of the RAND Summer Associates Program. And recently, he founded Imaginative Futures Consultancy. Dave, thanks for being on the show. I am so happy to be here. Thank you. So I wonder if you can, you've had a really kind of um, different career, I think, than a lot of scientists who get PhDs. And I wonder if first you can kind of walk me through how you got interested in science and what your undergraduate and graduate experiences were like. Sure. I think my story starts in a very similar place that most of our stories start, which is that I discovered physics in high school and I loved it. I loved the idea that you could predict what would happen mathematically and then run an experiment and it actually would come true. Like that, just this idea that there was a, a field that would could explain everything so completely, like I'd never met anything before it. And it just clicks so well with my personality in retrospect. So I went in as an undergraduate freshman thinking I would major in physics, but I purposely applied to a liberal arts program. So I thought, well, I'll go in as a physics major and I'll probably find something I like better and I will switch. Um, but I never found anything like better after four years. And I, you know, I think I had a broader experience again because it was liberal arts than most. You know, I, we did like wine tasting and art history, like archaeology, like it really was all over the map. But at the end of the day, that I didn't, I never found anything I liked better. But come senior year, I learned that basically the only thing an undergraduate physics degree prepares you for is to go to graduate school. So um, that is what I did. I did not feel like I had very many marketable skills at that point. Um, and I was also in no hurry to go out and find a job. So I applied to graduate schools and um, I had done some work over my undergraduate summers in optics. And so it made, and I liked it. And so it made sense to apply to, you know, optics programs. Um, and, that, you know, basically there's two big ones in the country. There's University of Rochester and University of Arizona. I visited both. It turns out Arizona leans a little bit more towards engineering and Rochester back then was a little bit more, a little bit more towards pure science or fun, you know, basic research. Hmm. Um, and just the engineering vibe of Arizona just kind of, and I just, I liked it a little better. So that's where I went. Um, and, you know, I, I, oof, all of us have stories from graduate school, right? <laughs> um, so I will not belabor, but I will tell you that when I showed up in graduate school, they were starting to think about what the next generation of the Hubble Space Telescope was gonna look like. Mm -hmm. And so that essentially became my dissertation. I wrote a dissertation on what, how to design the next generation of lightweight space mirrors. 
Um, and so after graduate school, I, I knew, and we could come back to this, but in graduate school, I knew that I wasn't going to do engineering forever. Mm. I, I had figured it out by then, but I knew that I wanted my next job or my first job after graduation to be in engineering. So I applied to a bunch of different places and I ended up at Sandia National Labs for a few reasons. One, I really like the Southwest and Albuquerque was basically just down the road from Tucson. And I thought, oh, this, it, you know, culturally speaking, like it'll be a nice change. I really enjoyed my time in Tucson. And I thought Albuquerque would be a nice next step. Mm-hmm. The second thing I liked about Sandia is that they did a lot of stuff cradle to grave. Like you could be involved on in something from the very first whiteboarding session to like the very end of it after it had launched and you were trying to figure out how to decommission it. Wow. And then the third thing I liked about Sandia is that they, you know, they're a government lab, right? So they were reasonably well-funded and they just had a lot of really interesting things, a lot of interesting people there. Um, And so I took a job there and I went from designing the mirrors as I did in graduate school to designing the whole telescope. Hmm. So I spent four years at Sandia and I had, um, you know, I got a bunch of stuff flying around in space and it was really great. I loved it. I loved the people there. I, I loved it. Um, I was there for four years, you know, in year three or four, I started to have a feeling, which was that, listen, the things they were asking me to design were super interesting. They were always like cutting edge technically, but I started looking at some of the larger missions, you know, national security missions, for example, that I was being asked to design things to solve. Mm-hmm. And at the time for me, it just felt it just felt like I was being asked to solve national missions that were a worry like two, you know, a generation ago rather than what was happening at the time. And it got me interested in like, well, who's coming up with this stuff? Like who's design who's deciding what missions we need to make telescopes for? And that's when I got really interested in sort of science policy at the federal level. And I thought I think I, for my next step, I would rather be trying to figure out how to use my engineering sort of talent and know-how to be thinking about what those strategic missions are and strategic science should be for the country at large, rather than just, you know, sitting at my computer and designing stuff all day. So that's what brought me to the RAND Corporation in 2008. And uh, I absolutely ended up at the right place. So if you're not familiar with it, RAND is a nonprofit, nonpartisan research institution um, that that is essentially a consultancy to the federal government. So as an example, if uh, you know Lockheed Martin and Raytheon or whatever show up at the Air Force's front door and they say, hey, we've got a bunch of new sensors, we think they work really great on your airplanes, the Air Force might go to someone like RAND to say, hey, the you know the the defense sector has all these new gadgets. Can you help us objectively think through which is going to be the most capable, which will be most aligned with sort of Air Force strategic goals and missions over the coming generation? It's this really wonderful place to play as a scientist at this sort of nexus of, you have to understand science, but you also have to be thinking about like, what are the threats that our country's gonna be facing or just more generally, you know, what missions is the Air Force gonna be called upon mm-hmm. to solve in a generation? Um, and so that is basically where RAND sits, is integrating the technology with the future vision of the country, with the, you know, the capability, existing capabilities of, you know, whatever agency they're working with. Um, and so I spent, you know, 10 years there 
And at the beginning, I was very much sort of an engineer working in science policy. But by the end, I felt like I had turned into a much more generalized learner and sort of knowledge person that could work just much more broadly outside engineering across different sectors, not just national security, but education, health, you know, justice, all the different fields that Rand's, Rand plays in. So I will stop the story there. <laughs> <laughs> um, awesome. So I'm going to ask you just a couple of follow-up questions from all of that. Is that all right? Sure. All right. So one thing I that I thought about was, can you define optics for me? Because optics, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, I guess, like, how do you define optics? Uh, does that range from, like, microscopes to telescopes or... Yep. So first of all, I need to caveat, should there be any actual optical scientists listening? I have not practiced in close to 15 years. Mm -hmm. So I just want to throw that out there. But the way that I always described it is that it's basically getting light from point A to point B. So that's, you know, telescopes, that's getting it from the star to a sensor. Microscopes, it's from the slide to your eyeball. at the time when I was practicing, there was a really big field in um, lithography, right? Like printing the plates that we use to make integrated circuits. Hmm. Um, so when I entered the scene at the time, like it, optic, optical engineering was having the moment that electrical engineering was having in the 70s. Everything was changing from um, electrons to photons. Um, and so there was just a lot of energy in the field at the time and, and honestly, a lot of money and a lot of opportunity. Um, and so that is another reason why I chose that for graduate school, because it just it felt a little bit more. It felt like the next wave to me, as opposed to, um, you know, other engineering disciplines. Yeah, cool. And so does optics cover just visible light or all ranges of light? Um, I think it depends who it depends sort of what lab you're talking to, right? Like my formal training, I think, um, really cover the entire electromagnetic spectrum, um, but it really depended on sort of what your specific project was is, is how much you would, um, what part of the spectrum you would associate, you associate yourself with on your CV. Okay, awesome. Okay, thank you. Um, okay, another question I had is you alluded to during grad school knowing you didn't want to continue on forever. And I guess what I assumed was like engineering academia. Do you want to give us a little insight into, you know, what what I guess? I mean, because it sounds like you had the realization like, oh, these telescopes are being built for like strange reasons kind of later. So what in grad school made you think oh, I'm not going to do this exact thing forever? I think that I think there's two answers to that question. And I think you keenly um, started to separate the two different parts. The first was to professor or not to professor. Mm-hmm. And I have always wanted to professor. Um, I really enjoy teaching. I really enjoy engaging with people and explaining things in a way that are like super super tangible and actionable and all that. But when I actually got to graduate school and I saw what it actually is like to be a professor and honestly what I saw, like what a lot of them just had to deal with, I was like, I don't want anything to do with any of this. Um, so yes, I understand that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so as, as I'm sure we'll talk about, like I did end up becoming a, 
becoming a professor. And I ended up becoming a professor at a place that I think was perfectly suited for my interests and my appetite. But we can talk about that later. Um, then the second question is, well, what about engineering? And when I got to graduate school, and you know, I gotta tell you, I'm not sure I realized this until years later, but I didn't have much in common with a lot of my cohort and classmates. Mm -hmm. And at the time it just felt kind of alienating and it felt, it felt like I was an underperformer and an underachiever and that I wasn't smart enough. Now I look back and I'm like, well, no, they just like totally geek out on the thing that that program happened to geek out on. Mm -hmm. And I went to that program because I found it interesting enough and I saw it would give me what I needed to kind of go out and be a uh, more of a renaissance, you know, worker. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was it was it was showing up at that program because remember I was coming from a liberal arts pro- program. Right. I'm sh- I showed up at that program, which was a genuine engineering program, being set aside genuine engineers, and I was like, oh yeah, I this isn't <laughs> this isn't me. <laughs> I am different from these people. <laughs> Yeah. And that's, listen, that's not a, a judgment. It was just a recognition that like these people have an interest and a passion and a desire for things that are different from what I want. And now at the time, again, I wasn't able to articulate it like I was now. I would, I, at the time I just would have been like, yeah, you know, I'm just, I'm not as good at the test as they are and all that. Mm. But now that I've been removed, it's like, Well, no, like those people, like they want to be engineers and many of them still are engineers. And I thankfully was at least able to sense some sort of difference that I paid attention to. And that's, you know, that's, I won't say that's what got me to where I am today, but it's the little voice that's helped guide me into these different things that I've done over the years. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that because I think, I mean, in some ways I've felt that way and also I think there's probably a lot of people who are like wow I'm not like the very best I'm not like this is the perfect thing for me and only this but I know those people um from grad school and just from other colleagues and yeah it's yeah it's nice to recognize that I um I totally agree I think it's a story that's not told often enough and you know, um, I don't want to pivot here too much, but like graduate school was a traumatic time. And now that I'm on the other side as a professor, I recognize that it's a traumatic time for a lot of people. And one of the biggest challenges is that most people don't recognize how traumatic it is when they're in the moment. Mm-hmm. And so I, I completely um, agree with what you said. And I'm like, so it, like our graduate student community just needs a little bit more help in this not in being self-aware, but in being supported through the self-awareness, because so many of us, I think, go through the process, then five years later, look back and we're like, holy cow, that was unhealthy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So um, let me ask one more question and then we'll try to elegantly pivot. I don't know if we can to rant. Uh, Because one other question I had was who, so did, did you find out who was like calling the shots about what you were doing with the telescopes at the National Lab? And like why those ideas were so outdated. Um, and I, I want to clarify, it's not that the technical ideas were outdated. It's that we were being asked. So actually, let me put this in context. I showed up at the lab. I was there from 04 to 08. So 9-11 happened three years earlier. By 04, we were 
really hot and heavy on counterterrorism, on, on like fighting the global war on terror, right, was what the words the administration was using, mm-hmm. and on counterterrorism. So, you know, for, for me, I was in my early 30s, and I was like, wow, there's all this great tech that we've got, all these great young minds. Everything I'm reading about in the newspaper as a national security threat is focused on terrorism and like all that stuff that was happening. It sounds so quaint now, but that, you know, 15 years ago, Mm -hmm. but I was being asked to do a lot of missions that still assumed that the cold war was happening. Um, You know, saw, saw the Russians as like the primary threat. And remember, like this was a different time. People may forget that like in the aughts, Russia was kind of a different place than it was right now, right? Like the Cold War had ended. They were no longer a threat. The place was imploding. Like it, there just wasn't as big of an issue as there was today. Um, so at the time, it's like, wait a minute, like, why am I doing all this stuff? Like, assuming we're still in the 60s, that might be a harsh assessment. But, you know, that that was my, I don't know, that was my read. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, yeah, then let's try to pivot to Rand, I guess. So, I think one thing people might be surprised is that there are professors at Rand and PhD students because I think it's kind of thought of as like a think tank. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, can you talk a little bit about how that works and what the PhD program is like at Rand? Sure. So, um, I don't want to misquote the date because my colleagues there might disown me, but I think close to 50 years ago, uh, there was a recognition at the national level that we needed a new type of PhD program to train the future um, generation of policy analysts. And uh, so they stood up a number of these places around the country. RAND's program, uh, so RAND Corporation was, was a think tank at the time, and it was proposed that they open a graduate school at RAND, fully accredited. Um, and it started with, you know, the first cohort just had a couple students um, to where we are today, where I think this fall's cohort had, uh, again, my colleagues, forgive me if I don't get the exact number here, but 40-ish students, like a big number. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea is these students come, they're, they're in residence there for about five years, typically they're mid-career. So, so there's a couple people that come in, you know, early 20s, fresh out of the undergraduate. But for the most part, these are people who are coming in kind of mid-career. They've, they've done something either in government or they've, for example, had a clinical practice as a physician. And again, to run with a doctor example, they've, they've realized they went, they became a doctor because they wanted to change the world, right? Mm. But they realized that as a doctor, when you change the world, like you have this schedule where you just see patients in the clinic every day. And they think like, well, but I want to use my medical skills to like think about what the next healthcare system is going to look like. And so to do that, you can't get into kind of policy circles generally just with the MD. Like it's helpful to get some sort of formal training. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of an archetype of a type of person that would show up over at Rand's graduate school. Um, and so what do they learn? Well, they spend the first two years in classes, just like most places, but it's really focused on sort of multidisciplinary analysis. So they take like us, they take two or three quarters of economics, for example, they would take um, uh, um, uh, sort of more quantitative classes on cost benefit analysis, that sort of thing. They also would learn about the, um, 
I don't want to say how the government works because it's a little bit more nuanced than that, but like sort of a, an academic view of or analysis of a bureaucracy. How do you get things done hmm. in a hierarchical organization? Um, and uh, there's a number of, uh, then they take uh, two quarters on sort of behavioral science, which is sort of understanding like the science of decision-making, the psychology of decision-making. The idea is that by exposing them to all these different fields, by the time they get out, they're gonna be really good at being able to do what I wanted to do at Sandia, which is to think about technology, to think about the future, to think about our current political state and our potential future political state and design effective policies that are gonna move the country to where the population of the country wants to go. Mm -hmm. um, and then one final thing I guess I'll say about the school is that uh, it's a little bit unusual and that the professors are all RAND researchers. Mm. So it's this kind of wonderful thing where none of the professors are there full time, which means you don't have the turf issues mm -hmm. or the as much of the kind of fiefdomism that you do in traditional academics because every all the professors kind of first love and first responsibility is to their RAND client work. Mm. And then they might spend a few hours a week teaching a class or serving on a dissertation committee. And it just, the, the benefit of the system is that it kind of takes away all the weird incentives that make for all of the not so productive behavior that sometimes you find in, in conventional academic departments. Um, so like there's no tenure, there's, there isn't really this push on publishing. And when you lift those things off, like you can kind of just focus on the part that matters, which is helping students, helping them get to where they want to go. Um, and so everybody who's, who's associated with the school is there because of a love of education and interaction and all that. So for me personally, like it was perfect, right? Because it gave me all the stuff I wanted without having to devote myself to becoming a tenured, you know, professor. Yeah, and all the extra jobs that come with that, like, yeah, like right. you said, publishing papers, running a lab. Um, right. And like a lot, yeah. And yeah, because I had the same reaction to actually seeing what it was like to be a professor, which is, wow, this job is like eight jobs and everyone seems mm -hmm. stressed. So it's really cool to hear that at Rand, yeah, it's like for the love of teaching that people are being professors. And I guess I was wondering, you know, so we talked about how getting a PhD can be quite traumatic. And so I guess Rand is a bit different because the faculty there are they have kind of different perspectives and also you have a lot of mid-career people so given the differences at rand uh between like rand and a traditional phd program at a university did you still feel like the grad students had a lot of trauma and i guess how how did you feel that that program differed from an academic phd program if, if that's a fair it's a totally fair question um the biggest difference is that it's closer, this PhD is much closer to a professional degree than a, than a really deep, 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 you know, research, work in a lab for six years um, type degree. So um, I think there's a real focus on like transferable skills and teaching them the things they're gonna need in order to be able to succeed either in industry or in a kind of mixed government situation, like on day one. Mm -hmm. One big difference is that because a lot of the students are mid-career, I think our average age is like 29, um, they come in with a, with a clearer version of what it is they wanna be doing than a traditional 
academic program where most people are coming in, you know, at 22 or 23 years old. Right. And that means that they have a clear vision. It also means that they've been out to the workplace, they've been burned, they've had successes, they're a little bit battle, you know, scarred. And with that experience, it provides a lot of clarity and a lot of um, motivation because they know that what they know that they want to be doing what they signed up for. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure I could say that about myself when I showed up at graduate school at 22 years old. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> there is suffering because there is suffering in all graduate programs, but it's a different flavor of suffering. I think the biggest challenge at Rand, and actually this is another big difference, is that in my experience at a traditional academic program, what happens, you show up, you sort of do the tour of all the available professors, and you're like, mm, these three seem kind of cool. Maybe I'll work in one of their labs. Mm -hmm. And if you pick one, you basically end up kind of adopting that professor's agenda and research and interest and all that stuff. Well, Rand doesn't have any full-time professors. And so there's a really big difference in that all of the dissertations are primarily student-driven rather than, hey, my professor's been working in this area for five years and I'm just doing like the latest iteration of the latest research question. Oh. So that is incredibly freeing um the and as a result like the the range of types of dissertations at rand go all over the map from something very conventional for example which is you know so i have one, i have two this week that i'll tell you about one is you know like how how are we defining domestic terrorism and is there anything that we've learned about fighting international terrorism over the last generation that we could apply to addressing domestic terrorism moving forward. That's kind of a classic RAND dissertation, right? National security, a little bit of uh, political science, a little bit of theory, all that. Another one answer? I'm working with- Do you have the answer to that question? <laughs> she hasn't um, proposed it yet. Uh, so two, that one's probably two and a half years out. <laughs> um, another one that I'm working with, which I'm super excited about, she came in kind of as a, with um, an interest in comic books and comic book art. And she was, and, and she sort of discovered her her talent for doing comic books after she arrived at Rand. And originally, she was thinking about doing a dissertation that probably was going to sound a little bit like the one I just described. Mm -hmm. But after realizing there's just so much freedom at Rand, she was like, "Oh, I could do a dissertation on how to use comic books to better articulate and communicate um, the results from policy analysis." And like, there aren't a lot of places I think in the world where you can show up and ask for something like that and and have the entire community say that's an amazing idea you should absolutely do a dissertation on that so that's the benefit and how it's different the way the students struggle is slightly different in that because it's so student driven it requires a lot of discipline mm -hmm. and so i think the way that our students get discouraged is that they'll lose their way um, they'll they'll lose the inner fire they don't have that professor who's working in that same topic with them side by side, day after day, to encourage them, to inspire them, all that. It takes a lot of internal motivation to keep the ball rolling um, over a rand. And it also sounds like it could be even more isolating <laughs> than a PhD already is if you don't even have a lab group that's kind of, yeah, supporting you through the whole experience. I think that's a really good observation. Um, and I know it happens, um, yeah. Yeah. Mm. So can you talk about what your role was with these PhD students at Rand? 
Yes, so I still have that role. Um, even though I'm over if right now, I am still at RAM part-time. And essentially I do two things. Um, because there, because of this uh, lack of full-time professors and sort of dissertations you know, standing ready for you at the doorstep when you first show up, um, that means that more work is on the students' shoulders to design their dissertations. So we run all of them through a full year dissertation workshop in their second year, where basically the class is spending that second year taking your ideas and shaping it into a dissertation. What's the research question? What methods are you gonna to use to solve it? What data are you gonna use? What's your analysis plan? All that. So we have three sections of that class. I teach one of them. So that's, um, that's kind of my formal role there throughout the year. I've done it enough years though now where I've started to develop kind of my own frameworks and approaches for it, having been through it a few times. And so, um, and I'll just throw this on the table and we can talk about this or not. But, you know, I have this hypothesis that your dissertation is your bridge from your present self to your future self. And so in that class, I really focus on understanding, like you can't build that bridge until you understand what your future self looks like. And so mm -hmm. we spend a lot of time reflecting on like, what do you want to be doing after graduation? What are your goals? What do you need this dissertation to teach you that you're not going to get in classes or in the um, client work that all the students work on when they're at RAND? Um, so, and then the final piece is uh, while my formal role is doing this sort of second year workshop, I'm also sort of an official student advisor. So I get a lot of questions from just first years to people who have been there for five or six years basically seeking sort of tune-ups on stuff that we've done in our second year together you know just making sure that that what they're working on in their dissertation is going to get them to where they want to go after graduation yeah so i think it's a really cool idea to, because i guess in my case i don't think they're there or the moment which is probably like when i met you was quite late in my phd where i was like oh i haven't been thinking about it as a bridge so much so can you like, like what happens, I guess, for students who didn't get this at the beginning? You know, what if you're in your fourth or fifth year uh, and you're like, okay, how, how do I bridge this? You know, like, do you have advice for people who are still needing to bridge their PhD and maybe didn't have that thought from the outset? Does that question make sense? It does. You know, I think I want to preface this by saying that and I was, I just thought of this yesterday as I was preparing for a conversation today, I realized this whole bridge analogy, it was born out of this observation that I had when I was younger that I wasn't going to be an engineer mm -hmm. for the rest of my life, that I wasn't gonna use what I learned during the PhD program every day of my career for the rest of my life. I'm not sure, like if you're going into graduate school and you know that you were to be doing some particular field and you wanna be doing that every day for the rest of your life, I'm not sure if the, this bridge analogy is as important. Mm -hmm. So I just want to start by acknowledging the bridge is probably a little more useful for people who are thinking they might want to diversify or broaden or maybe take a significant left turn right mm -hmm. after graduation. The way that I usually start with people is actually by looking to the past because there's a reason we've chosen all the projects, all of the work, all the schools, all the, all the things we've done. There are patterns in there that reveal what it is we love to do and so that's one place I'll often start with people is, well, tell me about 
to do with you, what you've just done with me. Take me through from high school to present day and tell me about what you've worked on. A lot of times there will be signals in there that indicate what the true passion is. There's also questions I ask, like, what does good work look like? How do you know when you're doing it? Hmm. Um, you know, if, what do you find yourself doing? It's some variation of like, you know, what would you do if you didn't, what would you still do even though you weren't getting paid for it? I'm not phrasing that exactly right. Mm -hmm. But um, that's, I think that's a very uh, telling and insightful prompt to get at like, who are you at your core? What I realized about myself is that I'm, I, I was attracted to engineering because I'm a creator. I just, I like making stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't like the part about engineering where like it all had to be done to like the fifth decimal place. Um, but looking back like that, that's what drew me to that. And there are so many things that I've realized now looking back at my younger, you know, elementary school, high school self that should have tipped me off on that. Like, oh, I need to be creating and making and all that. But for whatever reason, I was just blind to it. I didn't notice. Um, but had I done this with myself, I would have picked that up and would have thought, ah, okay, that's the part of engineering that you like. And then the six decimal place stuff, you don't. Now, had I just made that simple observation headed into graduate school, I would have navigated the program much differently mm. <laughs> than I ended up doing it. I know it's strange that there's not more like stepping back. Just, I mean, maybe it's just like a cultural thing. There's not more stepping back and being like, what do I really like? What do I really want to do? Like, at, at least in my case, I feel like I was kind of like hurtling through steps that seem to make sense. But yeah, it's I mean, and I guess there's kind of um, it can be kind of scary, I guess, to step back and be like, is this still the right direction? And maybe that's why mm -hmm. people aren't kind of, yeah, stepping back and designing. But I guess my reaction to that is that um and I, I mean this very respectfully, like the people who teach in those programs are the most um, diehard of the discipline, right? They love the discipline so much that they want to teach others the, the discipline. And so there often isn't much opportunity to even ask the question, well, what else is there outside the discipline or even adjacent to it? Um, it's just, there's just no space for that. And that's totally fine. But I, that's my hypothesis as to why the kind of greater soul searching um, doesn't isn't encouraged so you just don't see it as much yeah and because those oftentimes those faculty members they're doing exactly what they want and they might not be able to understand or even like seek out and right. know the information that like other students might need so I guess it's really on right. the students in a way to find that themselves or like you know is there like a handbook <laughs> for, for like designing or bridging your PhD I guess if yeah there are tools that I use, and by tools, I mean kind of books and workbooks and quizzes and tests and stuff, which I'm happy to send you some links afterwards if you want to post them alongside this. Um, but there's, you know, I you asked the question that I'm realizing I didn't fully answer, which is, you know, well, what about somebody who's not at their first year, but their fourth or fifth year? Mm -hmm. It's never too late to start this. I will tell you for myself, I didn't do any of this until I was maybe 10 years after graduation. And so... You know, a few things about that. One is like, I realize now that had I started this earlier, had I engaged in a little bit more self-reflection earlier, I could have saved myself a pretty big 
self-identity, professional self-identity crisis, mm-hmm. you know, having to go through that whole thing. That said, I've been through it. And now anything that I can do to help others make even five minutes of progress on this, like I am totally willing to help out. Um, so this is why I've sort of incorporated this into the class is that, you know, I don't expect that all of them are going to have the answer on what their future self is going to look like by the end of the end of our time together. But even if we've just spent a few minutes getting them thinking about it, like that's more than anybody ever did for me. So it's, um, even a little bit of incremental work can make a big difference. And I would say at the fourth or fifth year, it's ironically probably the perfect time to start because you, by then you've understand the discipline, you understand the pros and cons, and you're also close enough to the light in the light of the end of the tunnel that you have the motivation to start getting all this stuff in alignment. Hmm. Yeah. So, okay. So at Rand, you're, you kind of have like a different style PhD and I'm kind of thinking about like, you know, something that there's a lot of dialogue about in the academic community right now is that there's more PhDs in academic settings than there are faculty positions. And so the degree is kind of changing a bit. And I wonder, like, if there's going to be more of a shift to more like what you've done at RAND, where it's, do you think it's going to become more of like a professional degree? Or like, how do you think the future PhDs will look? So I think that I I think the degree is going to continue. Well, is first of all going to absolutely continue the way it has continued. Here's an here's a a, uh, a dichotomy in the degree, right? Like it's it's a degree for people who go deep, right? Mm-hmm. Like you spend six years diving super deep on a topic, and there is no question that we will continue to need people who can do that and who love to do that mm-hmm. in the future. I think where we're going to see more of the critical mass shift, actually, I shouldn't say critical mass, where we're going to see more of the mass shift is on sort of a parallel road next to those like super deep, super technical, super specialized PhDs is as we get more and more deep technical knowledge, the irony is that we need people who are even better at bridging silos and mm. crossing disciplinary boundaries to really make new and interesting things. Because, you know, I'm preaching the gospel here, I know, but like, that's where uh, that's where true innovation happens is at the intersections of disciplines, not not as much within individual disciplines. So I think the opportunity is the people who love to go deep, let them continue going deep. I learned that I am a generalist and I fall into this other category. And so I think the future of PhDs for that type of um, disposition is understanding your discipline, but then understanding how it connects to all of the adjacent disciplines. And one thing I learned when I was at Rand or one observation I had was that more and more the problems that would land on my desk were about helping complex systems function effectively. Hmm. And so I really became a believer in this idea of the field of complexity science. And um, and so I think the the qualities that make PhDs PhDs, loving research, you know, geeking out on details, for the generalist to be able to take those skills and aim them at being able to cross these boundaries and being able to articulate 
complex systems, help other people understand them, help to understand where all the levers are and how you affect them. That's where I think um, we're going to get, we're going to need this second crop of, of PhDs over the coming generation. Yeah, cool. And I, you know, I can't think of what it was at all anymore, but I read an article, you know, sometime in the last six months that was talking about how now if you get like, um, you know, papers and like really niche biology or something like neuroscience I don't know like they can be so complicated that even the co-authors on the paper kind of have like no idea what's happening Mm -hmm. in like certain sections and it's it's like a kind of mind-boggling problem and like the the person who wrote this article was like 300 years ago it was possible to know like it would have been possible mm-hmm. to know everything that humans knew. You know, yep. there was like kind of a finite yep. amount of information. And so this kind of problem wasn't really there until kind of recently when we just start like going so deep in so many directions. And I think it's it's kind of like an uplifting thought to me because I think there there's like a feeling of like panic that like there's not enough jobs for PhDs, but it's kind of like, no, this is like a new world that we're in that we need we need these people in. Um I agree. I, th- I think that's where the future, and just to cite one data point, like Arizona State University has done, so, so when I was at University of Arizona in Tucson, like ASU was seen as the party school or whatever, right? But they have had a transformative president running that university for the last, I think, 15-ish years. And they have completely and effectively, I think, rethought what the future of higher ed is going to look like. And so one example of that is that they don't, organize their colleges around disciplines anymore. They organize them around problems or challenge areas. Mm. And you can imagine that this new type of PhD that we're talking about, that's where that person's going to find a job, right? Like not in the micro, micro, microbiology department, mm-hmm. but in, you know, the school of, um, you know, complex ecosystems. I'm making that up. I, I, they don't have that. Um, but that's the type of person that that type of school is going to be looking for. And that's where the interesting work is going to start happening is, taking all these different pieces and putting them together in new and creative ways. Yeah. Ooh, cool. Okay. So you're still adjunct. Is that the right phrase? Adjunct at Rand? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've also recently started Imaginative Futures or IF or IF? You know, it's really funny. I started calling it IF, but most of my colleagues and a lot of my clients call it IF. So <laughs> it's it's funny to see you make something and then see how others interpret it different (laughs) okay so if or if i guess um yeah can you tell me about what that was like to set up and kind of what the grand goal of it is sure so i we're coming up on our two-year anniversary in fact i think i started in february of 2019 um I left Rand in 2018 and I went to go work at a private consultancy. It was a little boutique consultancy. It had about a hundred people in it. Um, and I did that because I, I always wanted to work in the private sector for sort of fortune 100 clients rather than the air force or the army or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I did that for a few months and yeah, I left for a variety of reasons, but one is that, you know, they kind of use the same method to solve every problem and coming from Rand, like that was a really big culture change for me. So I was like, Hey, you know, I, I want to sort of get back to, um, sort of taking a broader approach to problem solving. So 
at about the time I realized I was like, ooh, yeah, this probably isn't a great fit for me moving forward. I was like, ooh, what am I gonna do next? And I was like, well, it doesn't feel right. And in fact, I just had no appetite for trying to like apply to jobs because I just wasn't convinced that the right job was just sitting out there on a website waiting for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had always planned on starting my own shop, but I was thinking I'd do it in my 50s, not in my early 40s. Um, but the more I thought about it, I was like, well, I have a little bit of a financial cushion. Um, it actually did kind of feel like the right time to do it. So I made the decision and I did, and I don't regret it. It was absolutely the right decision. It, you know, I was worried it might be too early. It totally wasn't. Um, and the idea was basically this. It was taking the multidisciplinary problem solving um, that I learned at Rand and then combining it with sort of the engineering mentality of Sandia, which was always like, whenever there was a problem, Sandia's answer was like, well, let's build you something. Mm. Um, and my vision was not like to actually physically build hardware, but to bring that like, well, I'm not just going to come here and like do the pigeon consulting, right? Like poop all over everything and fly away. Like I actually want to make something for you that's going to be useful that you will actually use. So it was combining the multidisciplinary problem solving with the engineering of RAND, which something else, the final piece, which we haven't talked about yet, which is the artistry of using art and illustration to inspire and teach and all of that. So when I first opened, what I do today is actually very different. Um, But when I first opened, the thought was like, oh, okay, we're going to help companies who are trying to do some sort of pivot to do a new product or work in a new space, think about what the, roughly speaking, the design parameters or the conceptual needs or, you know, what they need to do in order to, um, in order to get there. So as an example, our, one of our first projects was with a large healthcare organization that provided a lot of specialty care for chronic disease, disease patients. And this was, this was two summers ago. Yeah. Um, and so the, the question basically was, hey, we want to know what our doctor's office is going to look like in 2030. Can you help us think about that? Mm. And that, is a, that was a perfect question, right? Because it's research-based, right? It's technology-focused. We need to do sort of a tech assessment on like what's available today. What do we think might be available in the future? There's a social component. How, is, how are the demographics of those patients of today going to, how are they going to look different? in 10 years and how, you know, how are their needs going to evolve? So again, it's the sort of, it was, the vision was the sort of multidisciplinary silos of research that we would then combine together into an envisioned future. Um, and then out of that would pop some recommendations like, okay, well, if this is what your future is probably gonna look like in 2030, here's a list of 10 things you need to start working on today in order to get you there. Wow, cool. I guess you'll, you'll know in 10 years if it worked. You know, what's really cool about that is we, so we wrote this in the summer of 2019 and some of it's already started to happen, which mm-hmm. I think is, um, is cool. A, a lot of it was kind of telemedicine based and COVID has oh, really wow. accelerated a lot of those trends. And so um, it's just been interesting. It's been interesting first that the pandemic acted as an accelerant, but it's just been interesting to see some of that stuff play out faster than it would have you know, had this whole mess not happened. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because it's another time where, like, it's just stepping back and taking a bigger look at things, not being in the frantic, like, day-to-day of running, you know, that healthcare business and being like, all right, 
we actually can kind of envision what the future will look like for these various reasons and then yeah you were right and uh, it just feels really similar to kind of like designing your PhD like just taking a step back I think that's a very keen observation and we haven't talked about this but you know where I got to after my own kind of professional crisis or self-identity crisis was the one noun that I really attached to was designer. That's the thing that ties my whole career together. You know, when I was in graduate school, I was designing physical hardware. And then in, at Sandia, I went from designing like maybe a telescope to a whole kind of system architecture, a set of telescopes or whatever, right? And then I made this transition to RAND where I wasn't designing hardware anymore, but we were designing policies and processes and recommendations for and strategies for you know what we thought the various agencies should do and then to today where it's well we'll get there but it's helping people sort of design what their narrative or what their communication strategy is in order to excite and, and sort of get people on board with their with their ideas yeah so can you talk about that like how do you help these people design a narrative and communicate better there's you know a lot of talk about science communication but it's usually like it's not that good that's <laughs> what we usually say about it so how how are you like helping these companies and these people and like yeah how can we all kind of better think about communication so first i think it's important to advance my own story a little bit which is that are the company has changed since I started, right? Like we started thinking we're gonna do these big, you know, six figure strategy projects. But what I've learned um, is that it's hard to sell strategy because most people think they can already do it. There isn't sort of a clear benchmark on like what good or what good, it, what good isn't. Um, so once the pandemic hit, we actually pivoted quite a bit. And we're, what I found was that, well, maybe I should back up. When we did that project for the healthcare client on the future of 20, you know, what the doctor's office of 2030 would look like, you know, we did what researchers do. We did our research, we wrote the report, all this stuff. But as part of that, I thought, I don't want to just give you all a 30 page report because I know you all. And I don't mean my particular clients. Like I know busy people, right? Like they're not going to read it. So we tried an experiment, and this is mainly, mainly just me entertaining myself, was that I thought, okay, we did four lines of research. What if we made the, the key findings for each of those four lines, what if we turned each into an infographic that was, you know, maybe two, screen, you know, two computer screens tall, so you could kind of scroll down. And it would look different. It would, it would be a different format than they're used to reading. And I bet that if we did this, like, people actually might engage with it a little bit more. Um, and again, I, I just did this because I wanted to, you know, I, I just want to give it a try. Um, and uh, boy, that really took off. I mean, long story short, like that is what we do now. So that has evolved into our product. Um, and, you know, I've always had an interest in art. And when I was in graduate school, that started with like drawing my suggestions or findings rather than like writing a three pager. Instead, I would like make an illustration and then say like, well, this is how I think it's gonna work. Um, and so that's just a talent that I've continued to develop throughout my career. And then we, when we did those infographics for the healthcare client, like I actually was able to hire people and put something together that looked like polished and professional and, you know, put together. Um, and what I've learned about that is that it's, it's much easier to 
quote unquote, sell a client on a deliverable like that, right? Because at the end for that, it's like, well, what am I going to get? Well, like, well, you're going to get this beautiful thing that's going to be clearly thought out and people are going to love to look at as opposed to selling, starting by selling a strategy project. And at the end, they're like, well, okay, maybe you know how to do strategy. Maybe you don't. Maybe your deck is going to have some actionable findings, but it probably won't. Like these are all the things going on through the client's head. And what we found is that if we start by if we start by saying we're going to make you something that will solve a problem, it's going to solve a sales problem, it's going to help you uh, align your team internally around your new strategy or whatever, that's a very tangible thing that we can knock out in two weeks, right? But in the process of making that, we're going to have to do the strategy. And so we're still doing all the things that I originally wanted to do, help people think more clearly about the future. It's just our entry point now is a communications package one page or info, you know, something of some kind. And so to answer your question, I, I think that we're different than most because we're good at three things. And it's these are three things that I think your audience is all good at, but the average person is not. The first is that we can go deep on science, mm -hmm. right? Like I tell people, like I'm running a creative agency with PhDs. Like they're, they're, that just does not exist mm -hmm. in the world. So when we engage with clients, we have a lot of COVID work right now, a lot of people who are doing COVID testing, you know, private COVID testing labs, um, like we can go deep with them on science and understand all the detail. And, you know, because we've got these three letters after our name, they don't just wave us off. And, and we can ask like smart questions about the research they're reading. The second thing is that we can, um, we can bring the artistry, right? Like we have a stable of illustrators and designers um, who can bring this stuff to life in a way that doesn't use paragraphs, right? Like it's so much more effective if you can show someone what their future is like in an illustration than if you, you know, beautifully write it out on a page. The illustration is going to win out every time. And then the third piece is that we wrap the whole thing around the business model. And this is where my time in private consulting was super helpful. Um, you know, research is only is only as good as you can take it and direct it towards a productive way that's going to help the company make money. So by combining these three different elements together, the design and the illustration, the going deep on technical, and then being able to create actionable findings that are aligned with the company's business model, um, I'm finding that that's what's making us a little bit different. And at first, when I started out, I was a little bit embarrassed to say, like, yeah, I'm basically running a creative agency now, um, because it felt lesser, right? I was like, why did I go to school for all this time? But the more I do this and the more I see how different we are, the more I see that, like, no, we really are bringing something that, like, the marketplace is desperate for. Um, and now I'm much more proud to say that I run a creative agency with PhDs. Yeah, you know, and what I've been wondering is why there's kind of, you know, there's so much attention to like writing and like, yes, um, researchers are always making figures, but they're not always the most effective means of communicating. And I was thinking about like, why isn't there more attention to you know, visually displaying information. And I was like, maybe it's like an arrogance, which sounds like a, kind of what you encountered. Like you're like embarrassed that you're running a creative agency at first because it doesn't sound as like impressive, I guess. Like we just undervalue visual communication. Is that the problem? 
I think that might be a small part of the problem. Hmm. I think my hypothesis would be that PhDs, if you've chosen to do kind of traditional technical work, most people love it. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing it, right? And they are surrounded similarly by people who love to do that type of work. One thing that I have seen consistently throughout my whole career, including graduate school, is that a good number of those people overestimate how much understanding their audience has about the topic. Mm. And I think it's just a simple mismatch or, or a simple misassumption that their audience is as knowledgeable about the topic as they are. Um, and, and when you start with that assumption, like, man, you're dead in the water, right? Mm. There, there's, because, you know, if I think you're on the ninth floor, but, you know, it's on that particular topic or really on floor two, like, we are gonna be chasing each other around that building for a long time. Yeah. Um, and part of it, I do think is arrogance. I, I do think there's a subset of course that uses the big language and the vocabulary and all that as a way to sort of project power and dominance and all that. But I don't know, maybe it's the Midwestern in me, Midwesterner in me. I just assume that, that they just, they're not as empathetic. At, at putting themselves in the audience shoes as they should be. It's also hard to do. Um, yeah. You know, I, whatever, I have this, I have this, another hypothesis that like the things that we're best at, that's actually ironically the things that we have the hardest time seeing, you know, because we take it for granted, right? Like if you were, if you could fly, like you would think like, well, it's just flying. Like, can't everybody do it? And it's like, no, not everybody can do it. Like it's a special thing. Yeah. And you know, one, so I'm, I am above average at being able to communicate visually, but I didn't realize that until pretty recently. So, and this is not about me saying I'm great at something, but instead it's to recognize that actually communicating visually isn't easy. Like if you do it well, it, I guess that's the thing. When you do it well, it looks like the easiest thing in the world, mm -hmm. but it's not, it's, it's not like the, the illustrations that you see published wherever, right? Like they've been through a gazillion iterations. It takes a lot of work to get them to, to where they are, so. Well, Dave, that seems like a pretty good place to leave it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Joyce, I always enjoy our conversations. I really appreciate all of your thoughtful questions and I, um, I just enjoyed it. Thank you. That's it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. We'd love to get your feedback on how we're doing, so please find us on social media and let us know. We'll see you next week.